This is the Hymn Publications Podcast. I'm Chad Harrington. Today's podcast is about fasting, and it's part of our spiritual formation series, which was taught in person at Harpeth Christian Church in Franklin, Tennessee. Fasting is not a burden, but a gift to be received. It's something we get to do, not have to do. And in this class session, I make the case that fasting is primarily a means of connecting with God to show him our desperation, and not primarily about arriving at some sort of decision being only for special circumstances. Hear the story of how I fasted at age six for the first time without giving my family any warning. But more importantly, this session is about what the Bible says about fasting. We take a high level view of fasting as we survey the Old Testament examples. And I ask the question, what was the purpose for fasting that ties all of these together? We'll look at Esther, Elijah, Moses, David, and even the nation of Israel as a whole, but the main focus is on the life and teachings of Jesus. Learning to fast can lead to breakthroughs unlike anything else in your relationship with God. Jesus did it, and as his disciples, we can do it effectively too. Learn why fasting is important, what it does, and how to do it in today's class session. And by the way, you can download all the other notes and worksheets mentioned in this class session by contacting us at hymnpublications.com slash about. Now here's the session. Good morning. Good morning. This is class seven on fasting, and I'm really glad you're here. Um, We've got a crowd here. In person. (laughs) I wanted to just kind of tell you my goal. I try and do that each time, but I think it's valuable so you know sort of the, the main outcome for the day. And my main goal today is to help you receive the gift of fasting, specifically as a way to connect with God not to add another burden to your life, okay? I want to help frame fasting in that way. Another way to say it is I want to cast a vision for fasting primarily as a way to express desperation to God and not primarily about getting results from God. That's the kind of paradigm shift. That I want to move away from thinking about fasting as a way to get something from God and a way to express desperation to God. So let me, let, me share, let me share my journey with regard to fasting, just to give you a little context for where I'm coming from, some of my experiences and my continuing challenges. When I was a kid, um, I saw my dad fasting. I guess my mom too, but I just remember seeing my dad fasting. And so without telling anybody, I decided one day, I think I was literally like five or six years old, I was like, okay, I see what's going on here. You guys go without food. And I also thought they went without water. And so I decided without prompting and without telling anyone that I was not going to eat that day. I don't know how I made it through like breakfast and and stuff, but without telling anyone. But I just remember getting through the day and then my parents started to catch on. Like, what is he doing? (laughs) This child doesn't know how to fast. Um, But I remember... I remember my dad caught on and and we were at church and I even told myself that I wasn't allowed to drink from the water fountain and I loved the water fountain because you know I'd run around the church get hot and sweaty and I'd be like oh but I was like no I'm fasting today so my dad caught on and he decided to like make it like to go with it and to make it a special thing so we went into this like secret room in the church at the end of the day it was probably a Wednesday because we were at church at night And so he took me into like the boiler plate room or something. And I thought it was really cool. And we prayed together. And so that, but then he was like, 
um, like basically like you, you can drink water and stuff like that. It's like basically kind of laughed, but we ended we like ended the fast. <laughs> this is, that was my first experience fasting. I think it's really funny because it's like what was I doing? Um, but since then, you know what fasting or from that point until around college time for me um fasting was really periodic and kind of random and only for really important things like making a decision for college i remember fasting for a few days i think maybe two or three days so that i can make a decision about college like where i want to go and that, so to me that's what it was about that's all fasting was for is when there's something, you know, might happen once every year, or three or five years, like who knows, but it, it's really intense. But my mind changed by looking at biblical examples of fasting. It sort of reframed my mind around the whole topic. And a major paradigm shift happened when I listened to a lecture of Scott McKnight live when I went to the 2010 Stone Campbell Journal Conference at Cincinnati Christian University. And he had a keynote talk called spiritual disciplines today and his lecture let led me to a paradigm shift where i realized that fasting is not primarily about arriving at a decision about something before god but about expressing desperation to god and that paradigm shift it's something that I want to share with you today because it's been so helpful. And the truth is, is ever since then, that mentality and that posture has been very helpful for me where I've not just engaged fasting for big things, but regularly. And it's freed me up to connect with God more consistently and in deeper ways than I did before. You know, so even recently, you know, with Awaken Nashville, 2019, 2020, I've participated in those with many of you. And, you know, I've been growing in the discipline. But I will say that I still have challenges with it. Like, for example, this year, in the middle of the 2020 Awaken National Fast, we got some bad news, and I just couldn't handle it. It could have been a time where I went into fasting, but it was, like, too overwhelming we were we were too like burdened by it where i i just didn't have the capacity to go without food um and at that point i was i was fasting more than i had ever before during the awaken 2020 and i was just like, i can't do this right now so i like i just stopped completely so but i will also say um you know i i still struggle to control my appetite in general so fasting is still really hard for me, but I want to I want to say this. I'm in process and even in my struggle I'm still finding immense fruit and depth from it. So I just want to encourage you. It's like there's ups and downs with all these disciplines. There's seasons where you're like, "I'm doing great at this." And then it's like, "I never want to do this again," <laughs> you know. Um, but I do want to say that sort of the the season, it was probably a year or two, where I went really deep with the Lord through fasting. It was in my late 20s. And I was fasting regularly. Every week, um, usually, a lot of times, it would be multiple times a week. 
But I'm telling you what, it was so rich between me and the Lord that I wanted to do that. And it was the first time where I consistently and deeply went into fasting. Um, and there was something that happened in me where I realized, okay, how do I know when to fast? And I'm going to share that with you. But I just want to say this. It can be re- rich and sweet for you too. It's possible. So let's dig into, you know, first kind of talking about some some barriers to fasting, which I think are significant for us, um, just to kind of be honest and to sort of name those things. And then we're going to chart the path. So the first thing I want to say about fasting is it's hard work and painful. I think that really prohibits a lot of people from wanting to do it. It's like, yeah, sign me up for the hard thing. You know, um, I'd like to suffer on a regular basis by not eating food. That That's not normal. Like that's not, um, that's not a typical thing. But I'll just say this, any sort of development and change like, like this involves pain. I mean, even look at the life of Jesus. Like, he suffered. Um, in fact, he guaranteed suffering. And so as followers of Jesus, it is sort of part of the whole package deal. Um, but the cool thing about it is that it's redeemed in Christ. It's, it's not just suffering. Outside of Christ, it's just bad. There's, it's just painful. Um, in a sense. I think we're also afraid of legalism because if you think about fasting, some of the other disciplines don't cause quite as much pain, right? Or it doesn't take as much effort in some ways. I think fasting, you sort of have to exert the most intentionality and, and work. And then we use the word work and it's like, well, that's works, righteousness, uh, I, you know, we're, we don't have to fast. That's what the Pharisees did. Isn't that right? It's like, so that's legalistic. We may not necessarily say that, but we think like, oh, well, I don't even want to go there. It's a little too risky. That's the pharisaical zone, you know. And so I think it's, it has to do with the faulty understanding of, of fasting as earning versus expressing ourselves. And so that's kind of a whole nother topic about, about the gospel um, so I'll just say this, take the Romans class, take a Romans class, <laughs> but I do want to just name that as a barrier. Um, it doesn't have to be legalistic. Okay. In Christ, we have the Holy spirit who helps our hearts come along with these disciplines. I think we also just don't talk about it. We don't have a good framework cause it's not a common conversation. Um, Richard Foster in his book, celebration of discipline, um, Chronicles, as he did his research when he published this in 1978, he said that there had not been a single book published on the topic from 1861 to 1954. He couldn't find a single book on the topic in English. That's incredible. And so there's not a long history in our culture of talking about fasting. And it's like, I wonder why, because we're Americans, right? I think we treat food not just for as something that we can use for sustenance, but also entertainment, right? So in a sense, for us, it's a double whammy. It's this double challenge where it's like, oh man, like my entertainment's gone and I feel like I'm gonna die, <laughs> you know? And that's really how some people feel. When, you, when you've not been used to fasting and you stop eating, sometimes you go into this like, like 
your body reacts and you're like, am I going to die? Like, can I actually make it through a day of fasting? And it's like, yes, you can, but it's going to do some things inside of you um, that you're not used to. I think we also don't know how to do it based on scripture, which is the main thing I want to address today is to help you think through it based on scripture. Um, I also think we struggle to believe that it's better than eating. It's like, I could eat today or not eat today. What's better? <laughs> Food, right? <laughs> so what I want you to do is be convinced that when it's time to fast, that time to fast is a better choice for you than actually eating that day. It's not just something you have to do. It's actually better. Um, another part of it is that we separate our bodies like from our spiritual walk. So it's like, okay, like I work out and then I go to church and they're two totally different things, right? Or my sleep has nothing to do with my spirituality. But the reality is that we are integrated persons and perhaps part of your spiritual barriers are physical ones. And so I want to start with that today. So let me outline what we're going to do and then uh, we'll jump in. So I think we first need a clear understanding of the importance of the body in spiritual formation before we talk about fasting. And then I want to offer a clear definition of what fasting is. And then to give you a theology of fasting from scripture that answers the question, why fast at all? Um, And then I want to talk about how to do it. And so I want to do it in that order because I think I think we got to get our heads straight about this. If we just jump into the discipline, but we're not thinking biblically and we're not thinking theologically about it, we will go astray. Absolutely. Um, it is complex in a sense because you got to deal with, okay, not legalism, but what is the real thing, right? But you've also got to think through what is God's heart about it. So let's talk about a theology of the body, you know, and the importance and the role of the body in spiritual formation. The first thing I want to say about the body is that Jesus had a body and the incarnation places immense value on our bodies by the very fact that God's son came in flesh. That's huge. The fact that he sent his son in a body says this is good. This is holy. Otherwise, he he wouldn't have done it if it was unholy and not good. And he ministered to people's bodies. Fourteen of the recorded miracles, and there's probably many, many more, but 14 miracles recorded in the Gospels involve physical contact between Jesus and the other person. He didn't just heal their bodies. He actually touched their bodies. Jesus cares about our bodies, and he cares about physical contact, you know, in appropriate ways. Also, he died in his body. He His physical body was resurrected and his body ascended. He didn't just sort of (laughs) disappear. I mean, he did disappear, but then he reappeared. But that's a whole other story. But when he ascended, he ascended in a body. And it's like, well, where's Jesus' body now? Well, it's in heaven. But heaven is not far from us. And it's like, Chad, that doesn't make sense. I don't understand that. Me either, right? But it's true. And it's part of the good news. It's also true that we will have new bodies in heaven, in the new heaven, in the new earth. So the body's not just sort of good and then it's gone. 
then we're just floating on clouds with like, you know, like harps and arrows and we're little cherubs floating around, just loving on it. It's like, no, the body is, is good. Here's a fuller theology of the body, though. I want to give you a vision for how this can interact with the kingdom of God. Okay? Jesus talks about the body in very affirming ways. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Is not the body more than clothing? I think we actually need a higher view of the body. And catch this. As Jesus goes on, he not only says, hey, don't worry about the clothes. It's like, don't you realize how, how much capacity you have in your person, in your life, in your body? And you're worried about these frivolous things. Like, what kind of threads are are, you know, donning your epidermis. He's like, he says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Don't you realize, in a sense, that your body is meant for the kingdom of God to reign and pulse through your veins? That's sort of the implication of the passage. Well, if it's, if it's meant for more than just food and clothes, then what is it meant for? The very kingdom of God. And how do I know that? Because the kingdom of God and the power of God flowed out of Jesus' hands and healed people. And, and he says, don't you realize? Your body's more than just food and clothes. So it's like our bodies are very important in our spiritual journey and in the kingdom of God. And Paul affirms this. In 1 Corinthians 6.13 he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, I think it's a double entendre for Paul here because he's talking about the collective body, but I think he also means your actual body too. And so he concludes 1 Corinthians 6 with verse 20 where he says, 19 and 20 where he says, For you are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Like, what does that even mean? Well, it means give, give God the praise, give Him affirmation through using your body. And Dallas Willard even substantiates this. And I want to read a couple quotes from our, our book, Renovation of the Heart. On page 165, he says, um, Let's see here. He says the proper retraining and nurturing of the body is absolutely essential to Christ likeness. The body is not just a physical thing. And then on page 166, he says the greatest danger to our prospects for spiritual transformation at this point in his book is that we will fail to take all this talk about our bodily parts very literally. In other words, if we don't really take an honest assessment of the role of our body and how the bodily parts function in spiritual formation, then that is the greatest danger at that point in his sort of description of formation for us not succeeding. This is really important stuff. 
And so what I want to say is that our bodies are meant to serve us, not us to serve it. And so in, in 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says this very thing about his own journey. He says, no, I beat my body to make it. He's kind of extreme here. Paul does that sometimes. He says, no, I beat my body and make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified for the prize. And so you can read the context of 1 Corinthians 9, but he's essentially saying, no, no, no. I make my body do exactly what I want, like a slave. It's like, well, how do you do that? Through training. And so one thing I want to talk about, um, and this comes from 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, is the role of physical training versus godliness training. So Paul says this in, the, in his letter to Timothy, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise both for the present life and the life to come. So the Greek words for training and physical training, verse 7 and verse 8, come from the same stem in English that sounds like the English word gymnasium. Okay. And this has led many people to think that he's talking about actually working out. Like, because they used to have gymnasiums. That's where we get our word from, where they would, they would go and like, you know, it wouldn't pump the iron, but they would, they would compete and wrestle and all these different things. But when we read what Paul's saying in the context of 1 Corinthians as a whole, and sorry, 1 Timothy as a whole and 1 Timothy 4 in particular, it's actually in the context of Jewish asceticism that Paul is using this. He's not talking about going to work out. <laughs> and this is important because Jewish aesthetic, ascetics would train their bodies physically through extreme disciplines of abstinence. So these are the, like, the extreme legalistic Jews of the day. They would take super extreme measures, and we actually know what those were in this context because verse 3 of 1 Timothy 4 says that they prohibited people from getting married, which means prohibited them from having intercourse, even with a spouse, and they prohibited them from eating certain foods. Like those were the actual issues going on in Paul's day. And, and Paul says, no, those are things taught by demons. To teach like that where you, you can't marry and you absolutely can't eat certain foods, that's not just bad theology. That's demon-inspired theology. It's like, ooh, that's what Paul says. It's like, ah. <laughs> that's the context where he says physical training. Maybe a better translation is physical self-denial practices. And so he says they're of some value, but he says train yourself to be godly. And so I kind of want to tease that out just a little bit and say he's not separating them out. He's saying, no, there is a place for that. But he's like, if you're just abstaining for abstinence sake, it's like, eh, you're missing it. If it's just like really intense and like, you lose the, the heart behind it. You lose, you lose something. He's like, so there's some value in it. 
And, and he was a Jew, and he fasted, right? He was a Pharisee. And, and, and on Yom Kippur, every year, the Jews in general would fast. But So I think what Paul is saying is, is that things like fasting are of some value, and they're actually, in other places, I think he would argue, important. Because they orient us towards God, or they can. But I think he's also saying this, it's not an end, but a means. Because you can do the means without getting the end if you do it based on false teaching. But it needs to reach the end, otherwise it's just a means. Okay, so we talk about the means of grace, and fasting is a means of grace. What that means is, it's a channel through which God pours out grace. And so if you remember one of the early analogies I used in this class, you know, it's like going to an oasis in the desert. That's a means of grace. It's the place, it's the channel, it's the locale of where God's grace pours out like a spring. And you go there because you know it will predictably produce water, you know. So that's what I mean when I talk about fasting as a means of grace, but it isn't the grace itself. God is building godly character in us through these things. So in the spirit of the disciplines, Dallas Willard, um, another great book, Dallas Willard says, and I'll just read it on my paper here, the preparation for all of life, uh, for all of life's actions, including the spiritual, essentially involve bodily behaviors. Watching or vigil, for example, is a bodily behavior. Of course, it is not only a bodily behavior, but the point we are in greatest danger of missing in our contemporary culture is that it also is not purely spiritual or mental. And that whatever is purely mental cannot transform the self. What he's saying is, if we think that all we have to do is just think about God and just meditate and just like, get our internal world separate from our bodies together. If that's what we believe, we're in a really great danger of not being formed. He says, one of the greatest deceptions in the practice of Christian religion is the idea that all that really matters is, is our internal feelings, ideas, beliefs, and intentions. It is this mistake about the psychology of the human being that more than anything else divorces salvation from life, leaving us a dreadful leaving us a dreadful of vital tru truths about God and a body unable to fend off sin. It's like, where does sin live in some ways? In our bodies. It's like, we have physical compulsions to do certain things that aren't of God. Well, how do you undo that? By just thinking about your feelings a lot. <laughs> no, we train our bodies in righteousness. We make them a slave, like Paul said. And so... Um, you know, it's like, not only is the body important, but I also want to say that, that it's a, a means through which God can transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if this is a new paradigm for you, then that's okay. I, I don't think it's, it's necessarily intuitive. It, it's somewhat complex given our background. And so, if you'll remember how we've talked about who we are as persons, 
We talk about our spirit, our mind, our body, <laughs> social, and this is how Willard lays it out in Renovation of the Heart. Social, and then, you know, our, basically our life. So, but this, this is the body here. Well, we're, what role does the body play in spiritual formation? So it's like, okay, when we realize things new about God or, or we experience the richness of his grace, it's like, okay, wow, that makes me want to do something about it, right? But the, the opposite is true as well, that when we do the things that we want to do with our bodies, like abstain from sin in the body, it makes us do well in our spirit and in our minds. And so there's this dialectic of moving back and forth that we've been talking about. And what we're talking about mainly today is the body, the role of the body in this. Um, so let me give you a definition of fasting so that we all are on the same page about this. Biblical fasting is going without food and sometimes water to express our desperation to God. That's it. Biblical fasting is going without food and sometimes water to express our desperation to God. Now, I added the and sometimes water part because as I was studying, getting ready for this today, I noticed that it's more common in Scripture than I had thought. So I think that there are occasions where we don't drink water. It's, those are pretty extreme circumstances in the Bible. But it is there. When I was a kid, you know, I told you that story about me not drinking water. Well, I remember going to Derek D's house that day, one of my kid, one of my friends as a kid. And his mom offered me Kool-Aid. I remember this. And I was like, no thanks, I'm fasting. It's like, what kind of freak kid is this? It's like, those pastor kids are weird. No Kool-Aid. I literally turned down Kool-Aid because I was fasting that day. I thought that was pretty funny. So... What I want to do, though, is I want to say that this is not the only kind of fasting. This is a biblical fast, which is different than other fasts. It's not intermittent fasting, you know, used for purely physical reasons. It's also not a media fast. I think this is probably the most common sort of misconception. It's totally proper, and there's a place for going without media. We've already talked about that. But biblical fasting is going without food, not going without your phone. They're qualitatively and quantitatively different in your spiritual journey. They accomplish completely different things. Okay? So I just want to say, if, if, if you've done media fast, but you haven't gone without food, it's not actual big biblical fasting. Um, and that's just one example. There's other kinds of fasts. So, like I said, those can all be good things. But that's not what we're talking about today. What we're talking about today is utilizing our bodies to train our, our whole person in godliness. And so I want to say that fasting is a heart thing and it's a body thing. Okay. And that's important. It's not just like you go without food. There's a heart element to it. Um, but the goal, the goal is that we submit our whole selves to God that day. Okay. And we'll get into the details of that, but I want to read this from Renovation of the Heart on page 160. Dallas Willard says, The body should be cherished and properly cared for, not as our master, however, but as a servant of God. For most people, on the other hand, 
their body governs their life. So the body is something that we are meant to govern, not it govern us, and fasting can help with that. So let's get into the reasons for fasting. I want to motivate you. I want to inspire you um, with a focus on Scripture for why we should fast. Um, before we get into Scripture, though, I just want to say some pieces about the fact that it works. Okay, it's like, why do you do something? Because it works. That's the number one reason that's easy to sort of like accept, right? Um, and just a reminder that fasting is primarily about union and not about the results that come from it. So we're going to talk about the results, but it's not primarily about this. It helps us learn how to enjoy God himself by focusing on not enjoying food. Uh, another note from 1 Timothy 4 is that everything, and in the context of food, Paul says this, is meant and created to be enjoyed. And that's why Paul combated the demonic theology of you can't eat certain foods. It's like, no, bread's really good. But Chad, our bread today doesn't have sprouted grains. It's like, well, you can find them. It's called Ezekiel bread. Now, there's, there's, there's a big discussion about what food is and what food isn't, but that's like a whole nother discussion. Food that God creates is all meant to be enjoyed. But when we go without food, it trains us to shift our object of enjoyment from earthly things, which are good, and we choose to abstain from them so that we can focus on enjoying God. And so in a sense, we're actually always feasting, even if it's not on food. And so there's a quote from uh, a book by Teresa of Avila. The book is Interior Castle. And she's a 12th century Spanish nun who is really... Um, impacted many, many people. She was a friend of St. John of the Cross who basically coined the phrase Dark Night of the Soul, okay? But she writes in Interior Castle, which is a great book, by the way, very thick and deep, deep, but it's a spiritual formation book. She writes in this on page 47 that God always gives us much more than we deserve by granting us a spiritual sweetness much greater than we could obtain from the pleasures and distractions of this life. There's a pleasure and a sweetness from the Lord that's actually better than food. And fasting helps us to find that. Isn't that cool? God is better than food. And I really like food. I think it also teaches us general physical restraint. It's like, if you can control your appetite, kind of like if you can control your tongue, then there's a lot of other things that you can learn to control. So it's, it's a really clear way to sort of rid your life of what can be called venial sins, the sins of the flesh. Like there's certain sins that are just, just with your body. You can't do the sins without your body. Um, you know, another benefit in terms of general physical restraint is that it helps us to not overeat when we're not fasting. We're just eating regular food, but we're used to eating too much. And I've been guilty of this many times in my life. Fasting reminds us and trains us how to not overeat in general. 
And so we get used to these things. We get used to fasting from food so that when we actually want to be more disciplined, we remember, oh yeah, I can do that and God can help me. I think it can also lead to spiritual breakthroughs. Okay. Now this is, this is, I think really important because some people are running up into walls in their life. And it's like, I don't know what to do. You know, I've got sin or I need wisdom. I need really major discernment. And I long for new understandings, fresh insights. And I want deeper freedom in my life. And what I want to say is that fasting, when paired with other disciplines and, and other relationships and prayer, can lead to those breakthroughs. It can be the linchpin that, that helps you break through. Okay. It can also intensify other disciplines. So it's like, hey, I want to go deeper into prayer. Combine it with fasting. It can help you go deeper reading the word, getting guidance with regard to confession, silence, silence and solitude and service. When you combine fasting with these things, it intensifies them. Um, I think in, in some way, it's also a culmination of disciplines. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to sort of wait until you've mastered the disciplines and then it's like, oh, and then I'll add fasting to it. I think fasting can help you go deeper into them. Um, I think it can also automate some of our spiritual dis formation disciplines too. If you're used to fasting regularly, <laughs> then getting up a little early or, or focusing by keeping your body still is actually easier. It's like, well, at least I get to eat food today. <laughs> you know, I can do this. I mean, those are real things, right? Um, if you think about muscle memory, well, that, that doesn't make sense. Your muscles don't remember anything. It's the connection of your muscles with your brain that's solidified. I think there's also something to say about spiritual memory, spiritual disciplines memory. It's easier to go to some places with the Lord when your body is synced up with that. And if you do it repeatedly and regularly, it's like muscle memory, but it's spirit memory, I guess. That's real. If you memorize scripture more often, you will memorize scripture easier. Even if you're like, I'm not 20 anymore, it's like, but your brain, <laughs> hopefully your brain's still functioning pretty well if you're saying that. You can grow in these things. Your actual body can be better at them. And that in turn affects your mind and then it affects your inner being and your will and your heart, which is where the real transformation needs to happen. It has to pierce through that inner layer, okay? And then it just compounds, which is really exciting. So fasting works. Here's a question. And this is the, kind of the other big philosophical question in terms of why fast. Is it a command? Do we have to fast? And here's what I want to say. No. There's very little that you have to do, in a sense. It's like, love God and love people. That's pretty basic, right? I, to the best of my knowledge, there is no clear, direct command to the people of God that you have to fast. So I just wanted to say that. David? I trust Jesus is in 
Yes, I will. Yes. Okay, so David was asking, when you fast in Matthew chapter 6. Um, I'll get to Matthew 6. So thank you for bringing that up. It, by the way, the, just to answer that kind of immediately, the, Jesus says, when you fast. He didn't say, you must fast. It's, it is different. Um, so that kind of leads to my second point is, it's not a direct command, like some sort of obligation, but it is assumed <laughs> because these are generally accepted practices that lead toward God reliably. But I will also add this, that, here, hold on, let me just check something. But I will also add this, that sometimes God's delegated authorities in our lives, the leaders of a church or maybe a, a country, will call us to fast. And if we don't know how to do it, it's going to be hard to follow that. Not only will it be hard, but we'll miss out on the riches. Contrary, I guess contrary, why, like on the opposite hand, if we do know how to fast and we're disciplined and experienced in it, and then we're called to fast, then we can actually not only enter the riches ourselves and go there with the church, but we can also add value and life to other people by fasting well because of our experience. So I think maybe, maybe one of the things about what we're doing with Awaken Nashville these days is it's like, okay, who's ever fasted? And it's like crickets, you know, maybe 10% of the people. It's very few people actually have regularly learned how to fast. So we're building these muscles and it's amazing that 400 churches and then over 700 churches in 2019 and 2020 came together to fast and so, you know, I've listed some scriptural references here about when people are called collectively to fast in the Bible. Um, but I think it builds our muscles together on how to do this to gain strength together. That's pretty exciting. But here's really the main reason we fast. It's because that's what the people of God do. That's just who we are. And it's always been that way. I, and when I say always, I mean always. You can see it throughout scripture and church history. This is one of the disciplines that people go back to time and time again. So let's consider different examples and precedents of fasting in the Bible. And in this, I want us to try and discern this. What do all of these examples have in common? So I originally set out to basically cast this vision and a paradigm for fasting based on scripture that says, it's primarily about connecting with God to express our desperation and not primarily about arriving at a decision or getting something from God. And that's a big difference. It's primarily about expressing our desperation. So that's kind of the question. Do you see that in these different scriptures or do you see a, another common thread? So let's start with Moses when he fasted in Deuteronomy 9.9. He went up on Mount Sinai and he received the Ten Commandments. And it said that for 40 days he went without food and water. And it's like, that's impossible. You're right, it is impossible. It's called a supernatural fast. And I don't recommend it because it's impossible. Unless God himself sustains your body, which is really cool that that happened, by the way. And it did. 
talk about a big moment in history, getting the Ten Commandments. And so, but was there a decision there? Was like he, I mean, he received the Ten Commandments, but did he, did God give him the Ten Commandments because he fasted for four? No, it was such a weighty moment for Moses that he's like, oh, like food, what? No, this. That's what I believe fasting was for Moses in that time. David fasted for his son's illness in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 15 to 17. It says that the Lord struck the child of, that Uriah's wife had born to David and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and he went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. Talk about desperation, right? The elders of the house stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he wouldn't eat any food with them. Mourning is a time for fasting. Sure, I think he was asking God and pleading with God for his life, but I think more so he was just like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this happened. Um, Esther called the people of God to fast in the book of Esther. It's a huge point. <laughs> Esther Chapter 4, verse 16 says, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me, Esther said. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my maids will fast as you do, and when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And now that's an interesting example. Because she's not presuming God will do exactly as she wishes. She's just saying, people, let's just tell God, like, we could be wiped out. Ha ha ha! You know, we're desperate for you. Also, notice that the fast ends, and then she's going to go to the king. She doesn't go to the king while she's fasting. That's another note I'll make later. Elijah fasted when Ahab threatened his life, and Israel was doing so badly that he thought he was the only one left who really knew God. In 1 Kings 19.8, it says, and this is another supernatural fast, he got up and he ate and drank, and then he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. So most people believe that when it says he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights, that's all he had was that one meal, and then he went for that long. So those are some really clear and helpful examples there's also general examples from Scripture that I think are helpful. It's not like, here's one person, but it's like, here's generally a circumstance for fasting. And it comes back to desperation in the sense that they were mourning over their sin. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1 to 3 says, On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and wickedness and the wickedness of their fathers. Coming to grips with sin in your life is an occasion for fasting. If you're like, oh, I feel so terrible about this. Or, man, I didn't realize that I was hurting you so much, God or, or someone. If you're maybe sick to your stomach about it, 
then fast about it. It's a way to really go there and intensify confession. And we see this in other places. We see it in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 to 5. And even the Ninevites fasted. When Jonah in Jonah 3, 5 says, Hey, if you guys don't do something, you're all going to be wiped out. And they're like, ah! And so they all fasted and put sackcloth on. It's like, okay, I guess that was common in their time. But that's just kind of what we do. Let's look at fasting in the life of Jesus, though. So that's the Old Testament. I wanted to, to touch on that because I think it's really important. But I want to carry on this, this question. What ties all these together into the New Testament? So Jesus fasts before his ministry in Matthew chapter 4. And this would be the penultimate reason why we should fast. It's because our master teacher fasted. And he's the son of God. So if he fasted, then we definitely need to fast. Well, I say need to. We definitely want to heavily consider the, <laughs> the place of fasting in our lives, right? Because he didn't just say, ah, I skipped a meal today. He's like, for the next 40 days before I enter into my one and only earthly ministry, I'm going to, the first thing I'm going to do is fast for 40 days. It's like, that sounds really important. I think it was. And by the way, I don't think it was the first time Jesus had fasted. So if you want to enter into a long fast, which I know people who do this, Definitely talk about it with people before you do it. Not like kid Chad who just decided to do a fast for it. It can be dangerous. It can be. Um, and so actually talk to your doctor about this, right? But when Jesus went into the desert, led by the Spirit, it says, he was thrust into the time of trial by the Spirit. That I think he was gaining strength in preparation for his ministry. It's like when Olympians prepare for the Olympics, right? They go into intense training. Jesus was about to enter the most trying time of his life. And so he's like, all right, let's get down and dirty. Let's do this. Let's get really serious about this because I am desperate in my human body for the, my connection with the Father to be really close. And so he enters into the desert, and it says that he goes without food. It actually only says food for 40 days. And I believe that while he was in the desert, he was actually gaining not just spiritual strength, but I think he was allowing God to strengthen his very body with a certain kind of energy. So Dallas Willard, as a philosopher, talks about this concept of physical energy from God through the Holy Spirit. He says this in The Spirit of the Disciplines on page 53. He talks about the logic of E equals MC square, about how if God, you know, is full of light and, and energy, then he can actually infuse mass through his person. And it's like, I actually don't understand that. But here's, here's what I will say. He makes a case for it. And in a sense, I've experienced what he's talking about. I can't like prove it or something physiologically or philosophically. But in my experience, the energy I get from the Lord is distinct when I fast. 
and learning how to, for lack of a better term, tap into that is something that we can acquire. And I think Jesus acquired it. Jesus knew, you know, power went out of him when the lady in, in Mark chapter 12 touched the hem of his garment. What does that mean? I, I don't really understand all, how all these things work. But when Jesus told Satan, man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God, it's interesting that he equated sustenance with bread and the word of God. So that's why I say it's important to pair fasting with other disciplines. Because what was Jesus doing in the desert? He was also meditating on scripture. And so I think we can actually gain energy from God when we fast as an alternative energy source. I think it's pretty cool that God <laughs> made fossil fuels. And he also made, you know, sugar cane and he made meat and he and and he allowed fermentation to produce alcohol. And it's like all these different sorts of energy sources, right? So think about this. I think that there's a certain kind of energy that comes from God, like certain energies come from other things that are distinct, right? So there's a caffeine kind of energy, right? It makes you a little jittery. You kind of like it, <laughs> but it's a little empty. You're like, I need to put some food on my stomach. I, all I had was coffee today. We know that it's not enough, right? You know, then there's the healthy smoothie energy. It's like, wow, my whole body feels good. You know, it's like, I can feel the nutrients. You, I, you, you know, some people get energy from alcohol because there's sugars in it. Uh, there, there's, there's burger and fries and milkshake energy, which is not really energy at all. <laughs> energy to sleep, you know? You, you see what I'm saying though? I think there's a certain kind of energy that comes from the Holy Spirit that we can experience anytime but when we focus on not eating those sources of energy, not intaking those, we can focus on gaining energy from the Lord. Okay, does that make sense? So Jesus fasted. And we're going to talk about his teaching on fasting, but I want to just say he fasted. The early church also fasted. So in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, says that the church was praying and fasting before and while they sent the first missionaries off. And then Paul and Barnabas committed new elders to the churches that they were planting on their first missionary journey, and they did that commissioning and that, that ordination in Acts 14.23 with prayer and fasting. So we know that it wasn't like a, an ancient Jewish thing or a, just a, a regular practice in the ancient world. This was a part of the earliest church life. And in fact, Paul's very first act after he was converted to Christ was to fast for three days in Acts chapter 9, verse 9. And by the way, he didn't drink anything then either. So my question is this, did they do this for us to get a specific answer from God about something? I believe that the thread that ties all these together is desperation. You know, it looks like there was a specific outcome for Esther and David, but when you look at all the others, it wasn't primarily about that. It was primarily to simply express, God, I need you and I want you. 
without necessarily having a specific result or outcome or decision to make, okay? Now, like I said, I think all those things are good and fine, but I'll get into reasons why that's limiting, but I just wanna make that case. And so I kinda wanna encourage you and say, you don't have to have some big thing in your life in order to fast. If you feel desperate about anything, that's when you can fast and when, you, when I would advise you to fast. Because there's a sense in which we feel like our words are not enough to express how much we feel desperate about something in prayer. It's like, that's a good time to fast. And in a sense, our bodies become a word that we speak to God. A word in the language of desperation that speaks somehow louder in God's ear or different in God's ear. And, and again, I don't understand that, but it's real and it's true. So it's helpful to think about fasting as language of desperation. And so you know that it's time to fast when you feel weight about something. Think about for Moses, he was receiving the law. For David and Esther, the, they were, they were desperate about imminent death. <laughs> Whereas on the other hand, Elijah actually just wanted to die because he's like, I'm the only one left. And God's like, you've actually got more work to do. But he was desperate for God to do something because Israel was falling apart. Can anyone empathize with feeling like a nation is falling apart? Israel fasted over sin when they realized that they had gone so astray. And they wanted to express and intensify their prayer of desperation, asking God, have mercy. And then Jesus. Here's the interesting thing to kind of test this thesis about desperation. When Jesus went into the desert, what was his purpose of fasting? Was he trying to say, do you want me to go into ministry now? You know, again, I don't understand the father-son dynamic, but it's like, what was he, what was his purpose? And I think it was just expressing desperation. I don't think he's like, okay, now I've arrived at, at some sort of conclusion. I think he was exercising this discipline to commit himself to the Lord, the father. And then Paul, after his conversion, it's like, why did he fast? It's like, Whoa, I've been so wrong. That is so heavy. And I want to be close to you, God, and this is a way to do it. So when you fast, fasting is a word that says, ah, God, this is a big deal. And here's what I also want to say. This also means that it's not holding on to results or specific outcomes as your primary objective when you fast. And here's why that's important. Here's why this is important as a paradigm. It helps set proper expectations so that when we fast, we're not confused when our outcomes don't turn out how we thought. It's like, well, I fast, so that's an input, and then my output is clarity on this issue. Or I fast and I ask for God to heal this person, and the output is they get healed. It's like, well, first of all, that's a narrow view of fasting. But second of all, it don't quite work like that. 
God's not a vending machine. He's not a put it in here and then pull the crank. Fasting is not like that. Fasting is for union, not utility, primarily. I think it also keeps us humble if we're going to God not to get something, primarily, but to connect, because if we're going to get something specific from God, and we don't get it, or we feel like, oh, this isn't turning out how I want, it's tempting to sort of manipulate God, or like, no, I heard God say this, yeah, I was fasting, so. But it was actually just your thoughts. If you've got an agenda with God that's really specific, and you're sort of a black and white person, it's going to be really hard for you to actually hear from God when you fast. Okay, so it's really important not to have this sort of clear agenda um, in a strict way. I think also, like I was saying, knowing that it's just primarily about desperation broadens our view of fasting so that we'll do it more often. Um, I think it's also a way to say to God, I just want you. Going back to Luke 11, where Jesus says, hey, in the pinnacle of prayer is asking for the Holy Spirit. If we use fasting as a tool to get stuff from God, and that's kind of our main thing, then God's like, hey, what about the relationship here? Instead, we can use fasting as a relational tool. And then when we sit before him with open hands, then we can have a real connection. Because it's like going into a conversation with your wife or your husband or maybe even your kids, where you're like, okay, we're going to have a talk. I'm going to say this, and then they're going to say that, and then they'll realize that they were wrong or that they need to do this, right? It's like, yeah, good luck with that. It's like heavy agenda conversations work well in business, but not so great in family, you know, when you've got kind of your agenda, and it's, it's not comporting well with, with other people's agenda. How much more with God? He's the one we're following. He's not taking orders from us, you know, in, in that sense. We're the ones receiving from him on his time and with his agenda. It's his kingdom that we're asking for, right? And so I think fasting with a really open posture helps us to be led to exactly what God wants for us. And sometimes it will be surprising. But also sometimes... It'll be like, huh, I didn't feel anything. And that's okay, too. It's not primarily about how you feel. When we do get those consolations that Teresa of Avila talks about in her book, these special notes of sweetness that come only from the Lord, We're excited about it because we didn't presume upon the Lord that he would give them, but we receive them because he's good. And so we get results. We get things when we fast and we commune with God in that way, but that's not the motive for it. You see the difference there? So how do we do this? How do we fast? Now that we have a proper um, biblical theology and precedent for fasting. How does it actually work itself out? And this is where I want to get into some of the teachings of Jesus and others. But first I want to share this. That we need to 
I want to give you an outline of, of what I want to say. We need to start with how we posture our hearts and then how to think about the time for fasting, how to prepare for a fast, how to carry out a fast, and how to sort of end a fast and think about the results of a fast, potential results. So we need to think about issues of the heart. And this is really important because when you look at places like Isaiah 58, verse 3 and then verses 6 to 9, you see that motives really matter. It says, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it, God? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? And then God says, yet on the day of your fast, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? And catch this, to loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide food and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. He's talking about fasting. (laughs) A fast to the Lord is not a day where you get irritable. Now, it's okay to start there, right? It's like you're doing the best you can. But a fast of the Lord is a day of self-denial or a season of self-denial where the kingdom of God flows through you with reckless abandon and you are an instrument, not thinking about yourself, but others. That's the heart and posture that God wants us to have. You can also see in Zechariah 7, 9 to 10, more about that. But then Jesus in Matthew 6 talks about the attitude of our hearts when we fast. And this gets to your question, David. He says, Matthew 6, 16, when you fast, do not look somber like the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show men that they're fasting. They'll, they'll kind of look mangy, maybe. It's not like they're taking a, <laughs> a knife to their face or whatever. They, disfig- they make themselves look like they're fasting on their face. So it's really obvious. I tell you the truth, that's their reward and all of it. But when you fast, put oil on your head, take a shower, put, you know, wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting. And then, but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now let's pause here because I think these are really important points. Number one, fasting is for God. Okay, that's just the baseline. Number two, don't make it obvious. So kind of the takeaway for us in our culture is, you know, because we're not really putting oil on our heads and and disfiguring our faces would just be weird. But try and hide it from the general public is sort of the takeaway. Like try and hide it. But here's what I also want to say. Don't be awkward about it. What Jesus is not saying is that you have to like, be a weirdo and not tell anyone about it if they ask you or something. (laughs) You could tell people you're fasting if it's helpful or necessary for your day, right? That's okay. I think that's a common misconception. Well, Jesus said, we got to do it in secret. It's like, no, 
it, it's not quite like that. He's saying, look at your heart. Why are you doing it? If you're doing it so other people will see it, well, then that's your reward. But he's also not saying you have to be like secretive about it. In fact, I would say it's actually important to talk about it with certain people, especially your family, especially if you're a six-year-old and you're going without food, your family's going to find out. That's the truth. People will know. Um, so I would say the people in your, that, you're, um, that are in your family, they need to know about it. But also I would say people you're discipling and in community with. It can be helpful to talk about fasting. You know, our T group fasted, our transformation group fasted for bringing new people in. Well, how did we know we were fasting together? Because we talked about it. And in fact, it was encouraging to know that we were all fasting on the same day for the same reason. And that's why we can call a church to fast and encourage each other in that. And I would also say, I think it's a, a great reason um, to have a whole church fast. That's not the reason. I think a great practice is that our church, Harpeth Christian Church, calls people together to fast together. It's okay to talk about it. Um, but then the last thing I want to say about Jesus' teaching here is that we're rewarded for fasting. That's works righteousness. No, that's Jesus' words. <laughs> he actually says we'll be rewarded for this. And the reason I want to emphasize that is because Jesus says it. As, and it has to be for a reason. Why does he tell us that you get rewarded? Number one, so that we don't do it for people. But number two, so that it'll motivate us to fast. Why, why else would he say there's a reward? You don't tell someone you're going to get rewarded for something if you, you really don't care if they do it or not. <laughs> right? So what is the reward? I think at a minimum, it's a connection with God. And if he chooses to give us anything else, then that's great. I think my intuition is that it's what God does to transform our person. Because when we, when we die, the only thing we take with us is who we are in the relationships we have. <laughs> That's about it. So I, I tend to think that the rewards are in that area. But it's, it's tough to exactly tell. But it's fun to figure out, isn't it? And when you fast, you figure it out. How do we time a fast? I want to say this, there's a time to fast and there's a time not to fast. And the distinction is important. I'll tell you when not to fast, at a wedding. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew 9, 14. The disciples of John asked him, how is it that the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus is like, look, we're having a wedding party here. Okay, it'd be inappropriate to fast. He says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? Again, it goes back to what is fasting. It's generally just mourning or desperation. He says the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, from them and then they will fast. They'll fast because things are not as much fun without the groom, right? The wedding party. In fact, I'm going to be in a wedding today. And I'm excited. And you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not fasting today. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy time with my friends, just like Jesus enjoyed the riches of food with his friends. But there is a time to fast, and how do you know? And this is really important. I want to say this. Use 
intuitions and feelings in your body and in your spirit of desperation as a trigger that tells you to fast. And this is something to kind of, to kind of discern over time. You could think of it as mourning as a trigger. Too. It's like, when am I sad about something? When is something heavy? When is it weighty? When do I feel desperate about something in particular? And then go into a fast. But then we're also called into it, like I mentioned. And so regular fasting trains us to enter into those calls. And so I want to propose four general occasions for fasting that you can think about. And I think all occasions for fasting fit into this. These are corporate, scheduled and spontaneous fasts and individual scheduled and spontaneous fasts. And so I wanna, I want you to learn how to do all four, okay? The first one is corporate scheduled. And I'll just give you some scripture references for this. Zechariah 7, two to six, it talks about fasting corporately on certain months. Then when you look at church history, also Zechariah 8, 19, by the way. But when you look at church history, there's also certain days of the week that they fasted. So we know that the Pharisees um, fasted on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So what did the Christians do? They didn't fast at all. No, they actually fasted on Wednesday and Friday. Now, why did they do that? Well, I think there's several reasons, but we know that they did that. And it comes from the Didache in the late first or early second century that we find that they did this. So this is a very early Christian practice for regular corporate fasting on certain days of the week. So Didache chapter 8 says, But let not your fast be with the hypocrites, for they fast on the second and the fifth day of the week. Rather, fast on the fourth and on the day of preparation. <laughs> That's kind of funny. He didn't say so. Don't be hypocritical and fast. And he's like, no, I would still want you to fast, but just do it on different days. I think that's kind of cool. Um, and so I think it's great. I'm so happy that our church has a regular day of fasting every week. I think that's incredible. Um, and so thank you, Gary and the other elders for initiating that. And I just want to encourage, as someone who is in the body, I just want to say thank you and continue. Please continue to call the church. Let's go deeper into that. Let's not go away from it and just do our own personal thing. I want you to actually learn how to do that with other people. Um, but that's where we kind of get into the, these other kinds um, that we got to train for it to do it well. The other one, as far as corporate fasting goes, is corporate spontaneous fasts for our country, for someone who's sick in our church, or there's other points of desperation that come at random times. And when they call us to these, we need to be prepared by practicing. And then I think that we should do it without quibble. It's not going to be convenient when the church calls us to fast. We might have to cancel dinner plans with people, but I think it's important. And we'll talk more about that next week with regard to submission. I think it's important that we join together <laughs> even when it's not convenient. And then there's individual scheduled and spontaneous fast. It's like, Chad, this is a lot. Some of these can overlap, okay? Maybe your individual schedule also coincides with when your church is doing it. But if your church, the church that you're going to at present is not doing it, 
then incorporate that. So that's kind of the, the individual schedule that's kind of like, make sure and cover that base, uh, or learn how to do it. Doesn't mean you always have to be doing that in your life, but learn how to regularly fast, okay? But then, and this is my favorite, individual spontaneous fasting. And it's weird to say it's my favorite, but it is because I get to choose when to do it and it's more fun. There's a certain kind of sweetness that comes from a free will offering that you don't get when it's like, hey, the group's doing this, unless it just happens to be when you wanted to. So what I want to say is take cues from your spirit on this. And yeah, I, I did say your spirit. Because I think it's a common misconception that the Holy Spirit doesn't work through the intuitions of our spirit. And I also think it's important not to really try and suss that out. I don't know that, that the Holy Spirit gives us certain inklings to fast. I think sometimes he's like, oh, you want to do that? That's great. Okay. So I try not to analyze, like, did God want me to do this or do I just want to do it? Just try and... Uh, obviously, you can pray about it, but try and discern, when do I actually want to do this? Another way to think about it, about it is, when do I feel like doing this? Okay? Kind of like a spiritual intuition feeling. So if you're anticipating desperation or something hits you personally, decide to fast on the next day. That's just my advice. It's like, man, I'm starting to feel like, really, there's a lot of weight about this thing at work. I don't know what to do about it. Man, I feel like kind of sad about it. I'm kind of desperate for, oh, tomorrow I'm going to fast. You know, if there's something important to you like that, or maybe, maybe there's sin in your life you've realized. It's like, man, I'm, I just, I, I, I want this gone from my life fast about it. If you're teaching or preaching in the church, it's like, that's important stuff fast in anticipation of that. If there's an important conversation that you need to have or a decision you need to make or a difficult season coming up, interesting enough, when you're feeling weight, that's when to go like down into it and fast. <laughs> it's like, I feel burdened. And now's the time to fast? It's actually, yes, that is. Because you're kind of owning what it is that's going on in your spirit and you're going there. It's sort of in psychological counseling language, it's sort of welcoming to the table the sadness and going there and not casting it off as an exile in your journey, okay? And when you go there, you say, yeah, I am sad, and that's for good reason, or I am desperate, and that's legitimate. Fasting gives language to that. And then I'll just say this, commit to it and follow through as best you can. It's like if you decide spontaneously to fast, no one's really going to hold you accountable to that, right? There's not like a corporate breaking of the fast. But I just want to encourage for your own integrity and joy, persevere through the commitment you make. Decide how long you'll fast and communicate with your family about it. And I also want to say there's, there's more to preparing for a fast, but um, this book, Revival Starts Here, gives you a lot more details and actually kind of guides you through how to, how to do that. Uh, how to pick your fast, and, and, and some more things like that. Um, but I just want to say, you know, decide what kind of fast is appropriate. And 
the way that you can measure what kind of fast or how long is, is really just in proportion to how desperate you feel about it. I've never gone without water intentionally, but as I've been studying this week, I'm like, maybe that would be good, but it's like, that's kind of extreme. <laughs> so I need to think more about that, but, um, you know, decide on how long you'll fast beforehand. And you get kind of an intuition about it and you learn as you go. And then during the fast, like, how do you do that? How do you actually do the fast? <laughs> well, it's pretty simple. You don't eat. Um, <laughs> but when you feel hungry, <laughs> when you feel hungry or weak, use that as a cue to intensify the other disciplines. It's like, man, it's like, so I stand, at least I try and stand for a lot of my work day. Well, when I fast and I'm working, that can be draining. So instead of being angry or irritable, I actually just say, okay, I am feeling really weak. I need energy. I will stop working and go pray. And I, <laughs> I gain energy and I come back and I'm ready to go. I, I'm not kidding. And you, you may have experienced that too. If you haven't, that's my encouragement to you. Maybe you need to talk to your boss at work. It's like, hey, um, I, can I take more breaks today? Sure, I'll, I'll stay longer and, and make up my work or whatever. Or maybe you're like a dental hygienist and you don't get breaks like you want. Well, pray a lot at lunch when you do have a break and maybe pray while you're in between patients, things like that. You know, and then it's like, how do you actually do the no food thing? If it's a new discipline for you, start with not having snacks or something like that. And then pick a small meal to not eat. And then a regular meal and then maybe go a couple meals and then a whole day, like 36 hours. Well, it's not, you know, for me, when I don't eat three meals, I consider that a 36 hour fast and then go three days. There's different levels of desperation. I encourage you to, to try and do all of those. And then when you're fasting feast on God, I love how the chosen TV series talks about binging on Jesus. We should. we should. When we're fasting, we should actually be feasting on God. Otherwise, you're just not eating, and that's no fun. And then how do you end your fast? I'll just say this. Control your appetite. You know, I struggle with this one, and I, please pray for me on that. I, I, I'm, I'm feeling hindered with the Lord because I struggle to control my appetite. But in general, but especially when I break a fast. Um, I've been talking with the guys about that, so please pray for me about that. Um, and when you break a fast, don't worry about a special epiphany, having come or not having come, or did I hear God right? I've learned to, to actually not put a whole lot of weight in, in that moment of ending your fast. Um, it doesn't have to be super ceremonial unless you want that. Um, and I think, I think that's important too, going back to the results thing. You know, as we think about the, res the potential results of a fast, like the outcome, if we've held things loosely, the truth is that's good because we might not see direct results from a fast, especially immediately. In fact, I would say that in my experience, the um, consolations of the Lord or the revelations or the gifts of the Lord that come from fasting usually come after, not during my fast. This is important when you're making decisions. And, and I've heard this from other people too. So this isn't Bible, this is just experience. When you're making a decision, my advice to you 
and this isn't absolute, but my general advice to you is wait until the fast is over to go to see King Xerxes, to have that conversation, to make that decision. Because yeah, you, 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 might, you might be pretty weak when you're fasting. And if you're experienced, you'll know that where you're at in your head about stuff. But it might not be a good idea. And in fact, I think oftentimes the things come after you've ended the fast, which is kind of fun. Um, uh, just a note on that. There's, um, there's a story Dallas Willard talks about in the book Hearing God. And he says that there was a preacher who started fasting. And uh, he didn't tell anyone about it. But the lady who would record the sermon tapes, they actually had tapes at that time, from the 80s or something like that, 90s. She said, what's going on? Like, people are requesting your sermon tapes like double what they normally do. What's going on? Whatever it is, keep on doing it. He didn't tell her, but he had started fasting in preparation for his sermons. And there was an inexplicable increase in hunger that came as a result for that, for the Lord. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. So my advice kind of in summary is do it regularly and consistently. Ease into it. Do it literally. No food. You can do a media fast too, but we're talking about food. Do it incrementally longer. And do it intentionally at certain promptings. And do it in community. And here's just some bonus advice. Take care of your body in general. Because if you fast and you're kind of abusing your body, uh, you don't have enough sleep, um, you're eating the wrong food, you're not exercising, fasting will lose, lose its power for you. It won't, it'll actually be worse, like a worse experience for you. It'll take more for you to enjoy it. So take care of your body in general. And I think fasting can actually help with that. And so I want to end with a story of encouragement and motivation for you. Going back to Acts chapter 13. Enter into that room where the people of God are praying and fasting for God to do something for a world that needs the gospel. They're desperate. And God says, all right, let's go. Send five guys out to go into the oikumene, the inhabited Roman world. And for the first time ever, through a moment of prayer and fasting, God ignites a fire that ignited a forest fire that inflamed the world with goodness. You know, we've got fires in California right now that I think are somewhat unprecedented. Imagine that, but for the gospel. That came from a moment of prayer and fasting. Fasting can lead to breakthroughs for our nation, for our church, and for the lost. And when we enter into these riches and the depths of God, we too can experience these things for our church, the people around us, and for even our country. And so there's... Uh, an assignment, if you will. There's an opportunity to go through an exercise to help you sort of land on what you're going to do for a fast. 
So I encourage you to do that this week. It's designed where you don't have to have it all figured out immediately, but it gets your general plan moving forward. And so I just wanted to encourage you guys, if you want to start fasting, be encouraged by the biblical precedents and teachings on fasting. And don't fret if you're not, you know, somewhere where someone else is. Just start where you're at and take the next right step. So we've got about a minute or two left. Just want to encourage you with a couple resources. Um, the Celebration of Discipline has a chapter just on fasting. Um, and The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard, he helps you understand sort of some of these um, heart-level things behind disciplines like fasting. Um, and then revival starts here. So um, that's about it for today.